we are going to, without any further delay, continue our study. Uh, you know, uh, we've been doing or erecting the foundations of the faith here symbolically by these stones in a day of crumbling convictions. We want to deepen our biblical convictions, and so we've been speaking about that which we believe here. Our starting point being the Bible, not human opinion, philosophy, or speculation. And we've covered these topics and have landed on our present topic, Israel. Just to give you an idea, for those of you who are interested in knowing what we're going to do down the road, uh, I'll have three more, Lord willing, three more Wednesday nights on this topic. And then after that, uh, I think we're going to take a Wednesday night or two to do something a little different. And then we'll do the final topic in this theology series. Let's talk about the future. What's down the road? What's going to happen in the end? It's called eschatology. And I am no expert, but you don't have to be. We'll just look to the scriptures and see what they say about what's coming. So that'll be after the Israel series, and we'll be on that one for for quite some time because there's a lot to be said about things down the road. Now, for tonight, I want for us to address this question, which is becoming, always has been, but even more relevant in our day, and it's this one. Has God rejected and replaced Israel? As some say uh, quite quickly, yes. And I could understand why that would be the answer of many, Whole denominations, by the way, have voted yes. Uh, you, you probably need to know this. God indeed has rejected and replaced Israel. And there's a, some human rationale behind it. I can understand it. I mean, after all, you have the most spiritually privileged people on earth, the Jewish people. Heavens to Betsy. The spiritual privilege is uh, overwhelming. And yet they hardened their hearts uh, and turned away from their own Messiah. And so, uh, very logically, one could say, in light of the fact that the Jewish people as an ethnic group have rejected Jesus, it's very understandable that Jesus would now reject them and uh, fulfill his promises given to Israel through, through somebody else. So I can understand the logic there, but once again, we don't want to rely on human logic. We, we want to use it, but not rely on it. See, we, we want to rely on the first foundation stone that we laid, and that is the Bible. So, so would, you, would you join me in seeing what the Scriptures say about that question, has God rejected and replaced Israel? There's a very clear answer to it, and it's found in Romans chapter 11. And we'll take a look at verse 1. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul is speaking. Here's what he says. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? You see, so he's entertaining the very question we are. God has not rejected his people, has he? Look at his answer. May it never be. He's speaking in the Greek language at the time. And at the time, in the Greek language, may it never be, is the strongest form of negation available to Paul. In other words, he couldn't say no any louder. It's not a maybe, in other words. 
It's not a, it depends. It's not a, I think so. May it never, has God rejected the Jews? May it never be. Well, then one asks, if Paul was here, Paul, how could you be so certain? How could you have such a deep conviction? How could you answer so unequivocally that God has not rejected the Jews? And here's what he says. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So you know what he does? He offers evidence to support his quick answer. Has God rejected the Jews? No way, says Paul. And here's the proof. Me, says he. How do you explain me? I'm a Jew, and I'm a saved Jew, says he. I have pedigree. Here are my credentials. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I, 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 I am specifically of the tribe of Benjamin. It's kind of a good tribe to be from. This is who I am, and I am an apostle, a representative of the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, He who is the Messiah. How then can you say God has rejected the people uh, uh, the, with whom He made the Abrahamic covenant when in fact it appears... I'm here, says Paul, and he's still working out his salvation plan through me. If he has turned his back entirely on the Jews, how do you explain me? So this is his argument over here, and then he goes on in the next verse, Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Boy, that's a good word. Foreknew is that it means something happened before something else. We could really translate it, these people, the Jews, have not been rejected because God loved them before. That's what the word knowledge means, not intellectual, factual knowledge. Heavens, we would presume an omniscient God knows all things. It means knowing in a relationship sense. So here, uh, Paul is saying, no way God has rejected the very people who he relationally connected to in a covenant bond before. Before what? I'll tell you what. Before they did anything worth being loved for. God loved them, knew them relationally before they even were a duly constituted nation, before they had a chance to do or not do anything pleasing to God. Paul's argumentation is if God knew them before they merited his love, surely he has not rejected them because his connection to them doesn't hinge on anything they do or do not do. You see it? He knew these people before they earned it. Or do you not know, Paul goes on, what the scriptures say. See, it's really good. I like what Paul says because he's just referring to the scriptures here, right? Don't you know what the scripture says? He's referring the people of the day back to the Old Testament in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Can you imagine Elijah himself a Jew on one occasion actually cried out to God that God would deal with his own people. Smack them around. God, says Elijah, they don't deserve you. Elijah's doing the best he can to talk God out of his love for his own people. Why did he do that? Oh, my goodness. It was a bad day in 
Israel, for crying out loud, they were bowing the knees to false gods. They were turning from the true God and they were worshiping Baal, the Canaanite deity. And so Elijah the prophet has enough. He's disgusted with it all and he's ready to give up on Israel and sort of thinks God ought to join with him. And so he cries out to God. And then it goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, these are Elijah's words quoted here by Paul. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They, the Jewish people, have killed your prophets, Jewish prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone, says Elijah, I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. But what is the divine, what is God's response to him, to Elijah? Here it is. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So you know what Elijah did? He made things 7,000 times worse than they really were. I mean, you know, I want to give some kudos to Elijah for hanging in there. But he wasn't alone. There was a remnant. Ah, that's the operative word. Please remember the word remnant. Because in every generation since God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants way back in Genesis 12, in every generation, the majority in Israel have been disobedient and have rejected their own God. But in every generation, that God has kept for him a remnant of believing Jews who have responded to him. It was true in Elijah's day. It was true in Paul's day. And it's true today. I shall prove it to you. Look at me. <laughs> look at Harvey. And there's a in fact, better look at Harvey. Look how good looking he is. Oh, oh, one person clapping. <laughs> and there are others in here as well. My point is only to say the existence, the survival of the remnant of believing Jews in every generation is proof of the fact that though the Jews as a people group have turned from God, he still intends to work out his plan of redemption through the faithful remnant until the day when all Israel will be saved. Now hang in there. I, I'm not getting to that one tonight. But Lord willing, we will next week. All Israel will be saved. And so Elijah cries out, I'm the only one who is a good guy. So what's Paul's point in giving this history lesson? Well, here it is, verse 5 of Romans 11. In the same way then, see how he's applying Scripture? He's taking what happened with Elijah. He's bringing it to his day by saying, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time in Paul's day, a remnant, there's that word, it's very important, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So you see my point? In every generation, though the Jewish people are surely characterized by rejection of their own Messiah, Jesus, in every generation, nonetheless, God has preserved a remnant whose eyes have been opened and who do believe. He has never once forgotten about the outworking of his plans and purposes through the nation of Israel. Not once. And it's all of grace. Oh, I hope I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm persuading you of that. I, 
You want to call undue attention to a people group as if they have inherent merit. They do not. The Jews do not. Nobody does. We're all sinners. It's all of grace. Here it is, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If God's faithfulness to Israel continues, it must be in spite of them. It has to be all of grace and not of works. And that's why Paul could so clearly answer the question, has God rejected his people? May it never be, because if he did, it would impugn the gracious character of God. It would mean that the sin of the Jews is greater than God's grace. Ah, that's dangerous thinking. So Paul says it's all of grace. Now he goes on, verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So what is it that Israel was seeking? I have to tell you something about my people. Generally speaking, Jewish people are seeking right standing in God's eyes. Generally speaking. Generally speaking, Jewish people are seeking right standing in God's eyes. But how are they doing it? Through adherence to the law of Moses. They are religious. Judaism is a man-made religion of works whereby people are seeking to work religiously hard enough to persuade God to forgive them on the basis of their religious deeds. We call them mitzvot, mitzvot, good deeds. But one of our own prophets says about our mitzvot, your good deeds are, all, are like filthy rags. He's not discouraging good deeds. He's discouraging good deeds as the means of establishing right standing in God's eyes. You and I are not good enough. To be worthy of a holy God by the doing of our mitzvot. Jewish mitzvot, Baptist mitzvot, it doesn't matter. Nobody could work their way into right standing with God. So Paul says what Israel is seeking, it hasn't obtained. Nobody does religion better than my people. We have religion. We have religious procedures and liturgies and books and rules, statutes and ordinances better than anyway, anyone. We've been doing this for thousands of years. You guys just got started, you know, a few hundred years ago. We got traditions you, you couldn't believe. If anyone could win God's favor by the doing of religious good stuff, we would have pulled it off. But we have failed miserably. So Paul, himself a Jew, says what Israel is seeking, right standing with God, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen, boy, that sounds like election, doesn't it? Well, that's a subject for another day. And I think the day will be one day after the rapture. That's a tough subject, and I surely don't have a full handle on it. All I know is chosen means chosen. So you can explain it any way you want to. It surely looks to me that God did choose for some to obtain, some in Israel, some Jews, to obtain 
what the Jews are looking for while the rest were hardened. And who are those some? It's the remnant. It's Jewish believers today who realize Jesus is their Messiah. I suppose this is a good time for me to step aside from my notes just for a second and tell you this statement, Jesus is Messiah, is now being challenged in a book written by a very popular author, Pastor, uh, Pastor John Hagee. And the book is called In Defense of Israel. In the book, he says, go easy on the Jews. They never rejected Jesus as Messiah, as we've been taught, because Jesus never claimed to be their Messiah. I cannot tell you how dangerous that aberrant, heretical theology is. Now it's put in a popular form, which masses of well-intentioned yet naive Christians have already purchased and are going to be reading. I must, as one of your ministers, warn you against that theology. To deny that Jesus claimed in his day to be Messiah. How do you even begin to respond to that when Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah, anointed one. To begin to confront that craziness, you don't even know where to start. What is it that makes a man who offers so much so crazy when it comes to this stuff? I'll tell you what it is. He values friendship with the rabbis more than he does telling them that their Messiah must be accepted if they desire to go to heaven. He doesn't want to offend them. He values the relationship. Please don't value relationships so much that you refuse to risk offending your friend with the gospel of peace. If you do that, if you withhold the gospel for fear of offending someone, are you a friend? What the Nazis did to my people is not as bad as an eternity apart from Christ. So, uh, uh, read the book if you'd like. Now, I should tell you this. If you're interested in reading responses to the book, if you're kind of missing what he's saying, if you email me, I'll send you copies of some articles. And you could read them. And you could see what you think. Okay? So, uh, Israel generally rejects Jesus as Messiah, but God has elected, chosen, enabled. Can we use that word? Enabled some Jews in every generation to see that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah, whom our prophets told us so much about. And whom Jesus clearly demonstrated himself and declared himself to be. So what has happened to the rest of the Jews? If God has this purpose uh, through the remnant of Jewish believers, has he forsaken the rest of the Jews? The answer is no. Here's what he did. Here's what happened to them. The rest have been hardened. The rest of Jewish people, down to this very day, who don't believe in Jesus, have been hardened. So how did they become so hardened? Who did this to them? You may be surprised to know that God did. Look at Romans 11, the next verse, verse 8. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes 
to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. That's what Paul said in his day. I could say the same thing in my day. This helps me to understand why sometimes when I have the wonderful opportunity to share with a Jewish friend or relative the gospel, and I think I'm doing it in as clear a way as I possibly can, and by the way, the story of Jesus is not that complicated. We've sinned, we have violated his law. Just take people through the Ten Commandments and they're getting failing grades on those. My people have in excess of 613 commandments. We are really getting a grade of F. So you take them through that and then you show them, what are we going to do? Our own prophets tell us, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's what Rabbi Moses said in Torah. So then you say to them, but we have no animal sacrificial system anymore since the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So what, by what means atonement today? Since Rabbi Moses said we must have blood as the means of atonement. Then you take them to Jesus as the Lamb of God. It's easy. It's simple. A young person, we've seen it here, can understand, can believe, can see the truth. Their debt and deficit and how God uh, supplied uh, for the need. So why can't it be that some of the people I talk to, maybe you Jewish people, don't get? Well, here's the answer. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. In fact, David wrote about it in the Psalms. Paul quotes him in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 11. Here's what it says. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. David even speaks about this hardening. Well, for crying out loud, how could a loving God who desires for all to be saved be justified in hardening people and then hold them responsible for it? Do you remember Exodus and Pharaoh, 10 plagues? God said, Moses, go to him, tell him to let the people go, but he won't listen. 10 times it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And 10 times it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's a judicial hardening because God sees all things in a moment. He doesn't see things, one event, the next event. He sees all things. He knew what Pharaoh's response was going to be. He knew Pharaoh would harden himself to Moses' request. And therefore, because he self-hardened himself, God gave him up to his own ways. It's a judicial hardening. God gave him what his heart demanded, that it be hardened. That's exactly what's happened to the Jewish people today. God has seen the response of his most spiritually privileged people. He has seen that they have turned from him, hardened themselves against him, rejected truth, and so he has imposed upon them a kind of judicial hardening. In light of what he sees to be their response to him, he has simply given them over to what their heart desires. You know what their heart desires? A righteousness, a right standing with God that they could take credit for. All religious people are like that. Look at how good we are. Look at all the money we give. Look at all of the philanthropic causes we support. Look at all the good humanitarian things we do. Aren't we good? Only God is good. So the Jewish people having been given up to that self-righteousness instead of confidence in the Savior who alone has righteously fulfilled the law. So this is the hardening that has been fall, befallen, not the remnant, but the rest of ethnic Israel, the rest of the descendants of Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob, which leads to this question. If that's true, how can any Jew be saved? They can't. It's impossible with man. And so too is your salvation. Anybody's salvation is due to the miraculous intervention, the gracious provision of Almighty God. Nobody can be saved. The Bible says we're spiritually dead. Can you please tell me what a dead person can do on his behalf? Nothing. Everybody's salvation is miraculous. And God is still in the saving business, so we pray. Oh, God, would you open the eyes of this Jewish person or that Jewish person? Would you soften the heart? Would you give this one ears to hear? We pray for Jews the same way we pray for Gentiles. We say, oh God, the gospel is, the, is your power for salvation. I don't have the power. Your gospel is, and by the way, it's to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So we pray. That's what we do. So some say, well, because the Jews, as I admit, as a people group have rejected their own Messiah, some people say, therefore, God has rejected them permanently. But here's what Paul says in response to that in Romans 11, 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Look how he answers again. May it never be. He admits, as we must, if we're people of the Bible, the Jewish people have surely stumbled. Over whom? Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus, the stumbling stone. Because they want self-righteousness. They want to have right standing with God in their own merits and in their own religious system. Gentiles are the same way. And so they stumbled over Jesus, who is the stumbling stone. Jesus, who is the only one who has right standing in the eyes of the Father. He's the only one who perfectly fulfilled every aspect of the requirements in law of God. They stumbled, but Paul says, yes, indeed they did. But is it permanent? Did they stumble so as to fall? In the Greek, it means to be destroyed, to be dead forever. He says again, no, may it never be. In other words, the stumbling of Jewish people over Jesus as Messiah is temporary. It's not permanent. Well, why would God do something like this? What's he trying to do during this temporary time of Jewish hardening to their own Messiah? Here's the answer. Embedded in the same verse, verse 11. But by their transgression, the transgression of Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The gospel message was given by God first to the Jews. The Jews have turned against it. God opened up the gospel to the nations, to the goyim, to use guys. God took this horrible transgression of my people as an opportunity for another people group to be as if they are just as much as people. Through Jesus, the bridge, the mediator. So that's why there is this partial 
temporary, temporary hardening upon the Jewish people to give an opportunity for Gentiles to hear the gospel and come into the fold. And that's why faith in Christ now really looks like a very Gentile thing and not very Jewish at all. I mean, it really looks like a very Baptist thing to me. And it is for a spell. But start getting used to gefilte fish and bagels, my friends. It's coming. You'll see, this is a very Jewish thing. It is not a Gentile thing. Faith in the Lord Jesus has been so Gentilized that my people can hardly recognize it anymore to be connected to them. But just wait. During this unusual period of time, the church age... God is bringing into his family with full rights and privileges, no second-class citizens, as many Gentiles who will believe. It's called the fullness of the Gentiles. And then, watch him during the millennial reign of Christ fulfill every one of his promises in the Abrahamic covenant to Israel. Every single one. So, so, so Paul says, they didn't stumble so as to fall. Oh, no, their stumbling is an opportunity for the gospel to be spread, proclaimed amongst other people groups. So he says in verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now I want to ask you a question. How in the world could God have one of his choice apostles, Paul, utter these words, if in fact he, God, is through with the Jews. If God no longer has a specific plan for ethnic Israel, how could God have uh, the apostle Paul under inspiration say, how much more will their fulfillment be, their completion of the Jews? Well, that hasn't happened yet. It's just a sprinkling of Jews here and there who believe. So that means it's in the future. That means God has a future for Israel. So some say, no, he's through with them. And the church has become spiritual Israel. Listen, 73 times in the New Testament is the word Israel. Every single time it refers to Jews who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This notion of the church as spiritual Israel is baloney. There is a passage in Galatians which seems to speak about the Israel of God, but I can show you that's speaking about Jews amongst unbelieving Jews who are believing Jews. God never replaced ethnic Israel with the church. There's a distinction between ethnic Israel and the church and watch as we do our study on future things, and you'll see. You cannot explain Daniel and Revelation if you think God is through with the Jews. It makes no sense whatsoever. Nonetheless, there are people today who say God has taken all those promises. Remember we started with the Abrahamic covenant, and God promised land and seed and posterity and blessing and throne and temple and all the rest? Remember that way back when, Genesis 12? So some people today say all those promises have been forfeited by Israel because of their disobedience and transferred to the church. Well, that could be if those promises were contingent on Israel's obedience. But don't you remember when we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, we defined it as an unconditional covenant. It came without condition. 
Abram, Israel, wasn't required to do anything. You're not required to do anything under the new covenant to be saved except to get out of the way and let the Lord Jesus fill your heart, mind, and soul as your Savior and Lord. So, so, so some would say, no, no, uh, contingent on Israel's disobedience, God has given up on them, taken all their promises, they have forfeited it all, and now God has transferred it to the church. And so this is called replacement theology. I bring it up because it's really, really growing again in new popularity. It's really interesting for me to see how things are coming together. You see a rise of interest in what we spoke about last week, the dual covenant theory. Jews are saved through Abraham and Moses, only Gentiles through Jesus. And by the way, John Hagee is very, very unclear about what he believes about that. So you got the dual covenant theory. You have something called preterism, which I'll deal with. If it's full preterism, it says there is no future not only for Israel, but barely for anyone because all, everything spoken of in the book of Revelation took place in A.D. 70. Well, we'll, we'll, so, so you have dual covenant theology, you've got preterism, and you have replacement theology, all, all rising in new popularity today, actually dividing churches, some of our own. It's really interesting to me how Satan is organizing another effort, this time theological, against the Jews. Folks, I think the time is drawing nigh. I'm no date setter, but good night. It's an interesting... Uh, kind of a coming together of these, uh, I think, rather aberrant uh, theologies. So replacement theology says God indeed has taken all his promises from the Jews. He's given, the Jews still have the curses of the covenant. It's interesting. He left the curses with the Jews and gave the promises to somebody else. So that's kind of a convenient way to do it. Uh, so replacement theology says the Jewish people as a people group, since they've turned their back on their own Messiah... Uh, he has turned their back on them, and therefore, so should we. Yeah. So whole denominations, I can give you a whole list, have actually written into their theological doctrinal statements, we shall no longer seek to convert Jewish people because they do not need Jesus. Whole denominations. Replacement theology. But I must tell you, as we draw to a close, those are always words when you say, as we draw to a close, people get real happy. <laughs> I have to tell you, replacement theology is an extremely dangerous perspective with very serious implications, and here are three. One, it denigrates the character of God. Folks, God took Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, took him into the land of Canaan. We call it the Holy Land said to him, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, I'm going to make a great nation, many peoples, I mean, all this kind of stuff. Replacement theologians say, yeah, but then God, to a point, God got to a point where he said, never mind. God didn't anticipate the sin of Israel, apparently. And so when he saw how sinful Israel was, he said, oh my goodness, if I had known this, I never would have given you my word. I'm telling you. Even Moses one time, God said to Moses, Moses, I'll get rid of these people and make a new people out of you. What do you think? And Moses said, oh, God, if you do that, 
What will all the other people of the world think? They'll think you're not strong enough to have brought these people out of bondage into the promised land. Oh, God, it reflect on you. Moses understood replacement theology detracts from the character of God. You see, therefore, how serious it is. It denigrates the character of God. Secondly, it undermines your own eternal security. We here cannot offer you assurance of salvation if you hold to replacement theology. Because if God came to a point when he had enough with Israel so that he rejected it and replaced them, you ain't so hot. When's he going to reject and replace you? You see how serious it is? Thirdly, it is at cross purposes with God's response to Israel. I just want to have, so do you, don't you? God's mind on things. Replacement theology is at odds. Is at cross purposes with God's response to Israel. How do I know this? Let me give you a sample. Romans 10, 21. Could I just show you God's response to Israel? Look at this one. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know what that says? <gasps> My people are disobedient and obstinate. No sugarcoating it. I love my people, but I have to accept this. My people have been disobedient and still are and obstinate. But are you missing the rest? Nonetheless, God says, yet all day long I stretch out my hand to them. Are you a parent? Are you a grandparent who has a child or a grandchild on the run? What's your response? All day long, I open my heart. I wait for their return, just as the prodigal did. I hold the line out to them. I don't have to. They don't deserve it. But I'm connected to them. How could I turn my back on my own? How could God be any less than you? How could he turn his back on the people whom he foreloved all day long, says he. He extends his hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Therefore, replacement theologians say, reject them and replace them. Turn your back on Israel. And not only that, I'll show you next week. Persecute them. They're Christ killers. I'll show you what our church fathers have said and done to my people over the millennia. You may gag at it. But if you wonder why don't Jews accept Jesus, they still accept Jesus with persecutors of the Jews. If you accept replacement theology, you are operating at cross purposes with regard to God's response to Israel. Romans 10, 21 is his response. He's not denying the disobedience and obstinacy of the Jews, but he's saying, nonetheless, don't you see, it's all of grace, as Paul said earlier, all day long I hold a line out to them. You get the image of a grieving, aching father. You know what it's like when you've got a kid on the run from you or from God? You're angry from time to time, but mostly your heart is broken. You grieve. That's the price you pay for loving that one with a love that will not let him go. Don't make God less loving than you. So can you see the dangers of replacement theology? I want to just, okay, this time I really mean it, close. But I got to tell you this. 
Does anyone happen to know how many chapters there are in Romans? Yeah, there are 16 chapters. It's a marvelous book. The first eight chapters are doctrine. The first eight chapters tell us what's already true, generally. Then you got chapters 9, 10, and 11. Forget those for a second. You get to chapter 12 to 16, and now you have, do this. <laughs> first eight chapters, kind of a crude general outline I'm giving you. First eight, this is true of you in Christ. Uh, the back four, in light of what's true of you, live this way. Then you have an insertion of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Some say it's parenthetical. It doesn't fit. Paul was, uh, you know, I don't know, didn't get enough sleep or something. Put him in there. What's the connection? Oh, my goodness. Listen to this. Before chapter 9 comes chapter 8, right? So before the beginning of chapter 9 is the end of chapter 8. Do you agree? You perhaps know what the end of chapter 8 is. What can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Then you have this list of stuff. Conclusion? Nothing! Not things present, not things to come, nothing, no height, no depth, nothing, nothing, nothing. What can separate? Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's the end of Romans chapter 8, right? Then someone in the day says, yeah, but what about the Jews? Didn't they succeed in effecting a separation? Didn't they run God off? Weren't they in covenant relationship with him? Didn't their sinfulness exceed his stick to his love, his grace? Therefore, Paul inserts Romans 9 to 11. You have to deal with the Jewish question first. Otherwise, the end of chapter 8 is invalidated for you because we found out something can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Just be obnoxious enough like my people, and he'll let you go. And by the way, you're doing a good job. You're catching up. So Paul gives us Romans 9 to 11 to show us, no, he hasn't forsaken, not even the Jews. It validates the end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, where sin abounds, his grace superabounds. You know what replacement theology says? No, it doesn't. It says your sin can become so sinful that it's equal to and even greater than the grace of God, which gives you more power than God has. Can you see the danger of it? I hope you do. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's a you thing. I'll tell you why. When you see how God responded to the Jews in light of their sin, you find out how he plans on responding to you. graciously, and in keeping with his word. Under the new covenant, he said, I have adopted you. I will never let you go. You are mine forevermore. If you think God revoked his promises to Israel, you can't be so sure that he won't with you. See how serious it is? Replacement theology. Not good but catching on like crazy today. So, so here's what we'll do, Lord willing, next week, more of Romans. Week after, more of Romans 11. One chapter. If you get Romans 11 right, you won't put my people in the ovens anymore. I mean it. If you get Romans 11 right. 
you won't withhold the gospel from my people. If you get Romans 11 right, you won't call us dirty Jews. If you get Romans 11 right, you'll take the gospel to the Jews as a first priority because if it's relevant to anyone, it's relevant to God's first covenant people. Yeah. So, you know what Romans 11 tells me? God is faithful though we be unfaithful. You know what would be a good thing to do? Let's stand and go home. But before we do, let's sing about God's faithfulness. You know this one, great is thy faithfulness? Sure you do. Let's, let's stand together. Let's sing this. I don't see our pastor, so let's get out of here before he comes. Will you sing with me? Great is thy faithfulness. Do you know this one? Here, oh, look at this. Let's sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Look, see, there is no shadow of. I love this part. As thou. Oh. Here we go. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Look. That's why we sing. Great. Yeah. That's the point. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. This is very true. Think about this. All I have need, whatever it is. Why?